0: Father, we can say this morning as your people with confidence and with glad hearts that all has been forgiven. That all truly is well with our souls because we have cast ourselves upon the mercy of a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your great mercy and grace that you have extended to us as your people. And so we come gladly this morning in worship and fellowship with each other in worship of a holy God who alone deserves our praise and our adorations. Thank you, Father, for sustaining us through another week. Father, we come this morning as a people and as a nation who are burdened for our country. We're burdened for the things of this world that we are concerned with. And the scriptures tell us that... You, Father, through your Son, have been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And you recognize that we are a weak and and a a finite people. We pray, Father, that you will extend your mercy through us today in practical ways. We pray, Father, that you will protect those men and women who serve in our armed forces abroad this very moment. We pray, Father, that you will bring them home safely to us. We pray this morning with compassion and even with broken hearts, over the ones that have lost their lives this week. And we pray that you will extend comfort to those families. Father, we pray that you will encourage and give wisdom to our president and his leaders as they guide us through these perilous days. And we pray, Father, that soon, soon, Father, we will have peace in our land and peace in the world. Father, we recognize as your people that peace Final peace will not come until the kingdom of God comes in its all of its fullness. When Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will rule on this earth, we long for that day, and our prayer is this morning that even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, now we come as uh, your people, and we focus upon this hour that you have brought us here in your sovereignty and your providence, and we pray that. Through the moments remaining in this service, all things will be done well and in excellence. And we pray for the preacher of the hour. We pray that you will empower Bill Garner as he breaks the word of truth to us that we so desperately need today. And we pray that through the preaching of the word, repentance will come. Forgiveness of sins will take place in this room this morning. Finally, Father, we pray that you will bless the offerings this morning that are given. We give gladly We give because we have been blessed so abundantly. And we pray that you will use the offerings given today to expand the kingdom of heaven for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning.
1: Would you open your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me as we read, beginning in verse 16. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would use your word like you use the rain, that it would be sent down to accomplish purposes in each of us that sometimes are different, but are similar in that it convicts us of righteousness and of judgment. That it directs us toward what's good and what's right. That it gives us perspective and balance. And it helps us to know what pleases you. So, Lord, take this time that we have this morning as we look into your word and use it for our productivity and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What lies beneath uh, this text seems rather obvious. It's the age-old conflict between the spirit and the flesh, the struggle between what I once was and who I am now. There's a story told that years ago, before Augustine was converted to Christianity, that uh, he was very uh, sexually active, very immoral. Not long after he was converted, he was walking down a side street, and a woman came up from behind and quietly whispered to him, Augustine, it is I. He recognized her as someone with whom he had been sexually active. Now, Augustine turned to her and replied, Yes, but it is not I. He knew he was a different man, but he still remained in conflict because years later in his writings, he used a metaphor to describe this text of a rider with two horses. And that's what it feels like at times in our lives as we struggle through the conflict The inner conflict, the struggle of walking by the Spirit and being affected by our flesh. One of the riders is pulling the reins toward the the militant rebel desires of the flesh. The other rider pulls the reins toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One path is less traveled. And although the final outcome of this conflict has been decided, there still rages within each of us a war. A struggle, a battle. You see, the two natures, the flesh and the spirit, are contrary. And the struggle is very real, as you well know. Paul makes reference to this struggle in another passage in Romans chapter 7. You might turn over there and follow with me as we read through that text. Where Paul, in Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 14, has this to say about the struggle. He says that we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not doing what I want to do, but I'm doing the very things that I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, I know that nothing good lives in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is there with me for in my inner being. I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. At work within my members, what a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, that text indicates that there is a struggle. And it's very confusing. At times, we, uh, our life and our walk can be very, very contradictory. The things that we want to do, we don't necessarily do. We end up most of the time, or some of the time at least, doing the very things that we agree with God's word on, that they're wrong. And there's a struggle inside of us, and it's, it's definitely a struggle. The text indicates that the struggle, in Galatians 5 at least, is with the flesh. He goes on to mention, as we read, a, a list of fleshly deeds, and then there's a warning at the end of this list that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When I read this list, I wonder who is not guilty. Who among us is not guilty? I read this list and I worry. It makes you. It makes you. Concerned. Fortunately, the verse there at the end in the warning, as I warned you there, as I did before, all those who live like this, Paul's referring to the habitual practice of these things and not the occasional practice. And so, what he's saying is that there's a sense in which all of us are going to struggle with these things. And look at this list, it's an incredible list. We could spend an hour on each one of these vices of the flesh. But you can categorize these things into about four different groupings, and we'll go through the groups. You have sexual sins, immorality, impurity, indecency. You have sins of idolatry, idolatry and witchcraft. By the way, the root word there for witchcraft is the word that we get pharmacy from. So this is dealing with drugs and so forth, too. Sins of strife, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Sins of intemperance, drunkenness, and orgies and the like. Of course, this is not a complete list, but as you read through the list, do you see anything that you're guilty of? Quite often when I'm sitting out there listening to the preacher, I'm looking at the list and I'm thinking, okay on that one. All right, on that one, yeah, I kind of have some struggles with that one. I'm okay there, but I know somebody else who struggles with this. And typically, that's where my mind goes when I'm sitting there listening or in a service. It's always geared toward, I know somebody lives like this. And occasionally, I relate something about the passage to myself. But for the most part, uh, I'm looking at the list, trying to excuse myself from some some of the list, at least. And uh, of all the sins listed, I kind of... uh, rate myself on on the on the curve grade myself on the curve and compare myself with others just to feel better about who i am of course this is not a complete list there are other lists found ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 to 5 romans 1 28 to 32 just to name a couple uh, as i look through this list some of the sins are public some of the sins are private some seem less severe than others and some are external and uh Things like drunkenness or adultery or violating moral standards, and some are internal or private. The sins like pride, envy, coveting, unforgiveness. Which of these sins are worse? Which are worse? C.S. Lewis had this to say. He said, the external sins are bad. The things that we see other people doing. The blatant things. The public sins. These are bad. But they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely internal. The pleasures of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human flesh, which I must try to become in the flesh. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. And what he's saying here is, is the list includes some horrific sins. But the danger for all of us is not so much the external public sins that are easily identifiable. The danger for us are the private hidden sins, the sins like envy and pride and coveting, those things which aren't seen. And apart from the Spirit of God, I'm telling you this, ladies and gentlemen, we are no match for this list. Believe me, each of us has an appetite for the flesh. And when that appetite is fed, it simply enlarges the void that that habit That fleshly habit was meant to fill. When these sins are practiced habitually, there is no choice. The addiction or the habit is in charge. We've all seen people, as the scripture says, who have made their appetite their God. We've seen people incorrectly try to fill the voids in their life through sin and through fleshly appetite. And all they do is create bigger voids. The solution is not to to move on or to run away or continue down that path. Someone once said that when we've gotten the wrong sum at the beginning of an equation or sequence of calculations, we cannot improve matters by simply going on. The answer to all of this sin over here is for us to take responsibility for the wreckage of our sin And to begin the salvage work that would start when we turn from our sins. It seems so simple, doesn't it? It seems so obvious. But there's always a sense in which our lives are walking contradictions as we deal with the internal conflict. But every once in a while, I'll catch somebody or see somebody who's caught up in habitual sin. And I'm thinking, why why don't they see what's going on in their life? Why don't they understand how fatal and how fertile at the same time this habit is in their life? Why don't they just stop and give it up and turn from it and do something about it? How can people be so deceived as continuing the practice of something that brings forth the fruit of death? I've heard that Satan only seduces those who are in the market for seduction and deceives only the self-deceived. Why do people do the things they do? Because basically, ladies and gentlemen, the heart wants what the heart wants. And inside each of us, there is, there is an appetite for the flesh. It seems so obvious, though, to when you're talking to people who are caught up in sin, to suggest things that they can do to, to free themselves from the habits. The text clearly says this, and I want to focus on this for the remainder of our time. In verse 19, the scriptures say that the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And they are obvious. They're always obvious when you're looking at someone else's sin. But they're rarely obvious when you're looking at your own. Scott Peck wrote a book called The People of the Lie. He says it much better than I can. And I wholeheartedly agree with this. He says that people are simultaneously aware of their evil and desperately trying to resist that awareness. Isn't that true in your life? Aware of the evil that's there and at the same time repressing it. Another writer, Cornelius Planus, talks about deception saying this. Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over our own eyes, over our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We give ourselves a head fake. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify ugly realities and sell ourselves the prettified version. We know the truth, and yet we do not know it. Because we persuade ourselves the opposite. First, we deceive ourselves, and then we convince ourselves that we're not deceiving ourselves. The sins of the flesh are obvious, always obvious when you see these sins in others, but rarely obvious when you see them in yourselves. At times, it feels, I'm telling you, it's like we're in the twilight zone. Even in times of worship, the wolves can howl. I can remember years ago, when I was in college, I sat under a man who was working at Bill Gothard back then. He was working he was a writer for Bill Gothard. And he, I'd go into the church services, and some of the worst thoughts would come into my mind during times of worship. Later found out there was a lot going on in his life that I think set the tone for what was happening in that service. But I've read about people in the ministry, men and women that you respect, and having some of the worst thoughts at times of worship. And I know in my experiences in worship, too, coming into uh, the house of the Lord to meet and worship, some of, the, some of the things that can come across your mind are absolutely horrible. The answer, I think, for all of us is, is that we've got to come clean with some issues. We've got to deal in reality as to who we are. No more masquerading and hiding and posing and pretending. We all know what lies beneath. We've seen it in our own lives. We've been a prisoner of the flesh, and at times it's pawn and servant. It's time for us to take responsibility for who we are. And the best thing that we can do, ladies and gentlemen, is to live in reality and not be pretentious. You know, quite often, even in our day and age, uh, I, I heard this as recently as this week, uh, someone was asking... What's wrong with the world? It's not a new question. Years ago, a columnist in uh, London Times, he often ended his columns by saying, What's wrong with the world? And finally, he received a a, a letter. Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours. G.K. Chesterton. Ladies and gentlemen, I am suggesting that what's wrong with the world is me, and it's you. A few months ago, a friend of mine overheard a conversation at lunch in which two people were talking about me. And it wasn't very flattering. The conversation was about uh, with a person who apparently had known me for years and uh, began telling this other person how pompous and arrogant, conceited and egotistical and self-serving I was. How they were happy to see me out of ministry because I really didn't deserve to be in the ministry anyway. And I heard these things when that, that was related to me. I heard these things and I'm telling you, it made me angry. It made me want to know who said it. If I could go have a conversation with them. I started thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, I decided to dismiss it. Because I realized it's simply not true. The things they were saying were not true. I'm far worse than anything they had to say. And I know this about myself as you know this about yourself. Tony Campolo used to say... If you knew me like I knew me, you wouldn't want to know me. But if I knew you like you know you, I wouldn't care if you knew me. <laughs> for the longest time, uh, it seems like for years, I've lived my life in a fishbowl. I felt for a long time kind of like the uh, traffic accident on the side of the road that you pass and traffic slows down. And everybody's kind of going, oh, man. What happened over there? You know, we got to avoid that. Here's probably what happened here. We got a solution. We're going to fix this thing. We'll make sure this never happens to us. And uh, they look over at the train wreck over there and pass by slowly, gazing at what had gone on in my life. And uh, I got to tell you, for a long time, I, I wanted to hide. I wanted to live in hiding. Whenever I'd come out in public, I'd uh, grab my, my cosmetic kit and put on my pretty face and make myself presentable. But I got a confession. I can't live like that. I don't want to live like that. I'm tired of the phoniness in the church. I'm tired of people living in a surreal twilight zone world. I think what's needed in the church is reality. I didn't know exactly what I was feeling until I read a book uh, and identified with a guy named Brennan Manning, who wrote the book, Abba's Child. Some of you may have uh, read it. I think that uh, Etheridge stole some of his stuff from Manning, by the way. But Manning says this in Abba's Child. He said, whom can I level with? To whom can I bear my soul? Whom dare I tell that I am compassionate and vindictive, selfless? and selfish, that beneath my brave words lives a frightened child, that I dabble in religion and in pornography, that I have blackened a friend's character, betrayed trust, violated a confidence, that I am tolerant and thoughtful, a bigot and a blowhard, and that I really hate okra. The greatest fear of all is that if I expose the imposter and lay bare my true self, I will be abandoned by my friends and ridiculed by my enemies. I admire that kind of reality and honesty. It's refreshing. And it's rare. Very few people I know, especially in leadership, are telling people that it's it's my sin that's nailed to the cross of Christ. Yes, I do think the flesh and the sins are obvious. When I'm looking at yours, they're pretty obvious. But looking at my own, I put a head fake on myself and I deceive myself thinking, well, I'm doing okay in most of these areas. When in reality, I know that I am vile and wretched. In my very insignificant opinion, that's what's wrong with the church today. We all wear masks, and our faces have grown, grown to fit that mask, but we know honestly, deep inside, who we really are. We try to divert the attention away from us by focusing on the failures of others instead of identifying with others and their pain. You know, I hate that. And I find myself guilty of doing that all the time when people come to you with issues or somebody's caught up in a sin. And, and you know, instead of identifying with them, and their pain, we try to relieve it. Or instead of sharing with them and coming alongside, we try to uh, dominate. Instead of understanding what's going on in their life, we try to theologize. Because you see, modern Christianity is all about ourselves, and the sin in others is visible. But in our own lives, lives we're blind to what happens. You know, I think it's kind of like. The hidden sin that's there. Uh, I've often said this to illustrations. I wish you could walk through some type of um, sin detector, you know, like a, the, like they have at the, the airport when you're when you're boarding a plane that you could just go through, and it would keep going off until you absolutely had to deal with your sin. You know, I, I wish there was something like that because there's hidden sin in all our lives, and and it's only exposed like. Like the particles of dust floating in the rays of the morning sun as as it floats through the window. That's the way our sins are at times. They are there and they are real. And it's time for us to, to own them. And to deal with that. There's a great struggle in all of our lives with the flesh and with deception of my own sin. The battle is relentless and it's painful. And I'm telling you, I, for one, I'm ashamed of my frailty and my weaknesses. And yet, I'm telling you this. Until you understand your personal depravity, until you own your sin and see yourself for who you are in reality, you're never going to understand the cross. You'll never understand the cross as something done for you until you see it as something done by you. The value of the cross is directly proportional to the awareness of my own sin. The cross is something that's theirs. We see things as they really are when we see that. When we see our sin and we understand the dynamics of what god did for us in relieving that sin then that kind of grace and understanding is transforming and there's a difference between assumed grace you know that stuff that we preach a lot of times where you know we're all you know all you have to do is confess your sins and god forgives our sins and be honest with you. there's times when we become apathetic or familiarity breeds contempt we have contempt for grace because we abuse it It's assumed because we understand that God forgives us of our sins no matter what they are. But when it's assumed, it's powerless and impotent. When it's unassumed, it's transforming. When you see yourself for who you are and can truly be mystified at the grace that God gives you in spite of who you are, that does something to you. It makes you want to do better. It makes you want to continue in the struggle. One writer said, we are wounded healers. Paul said it better. He said, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me? Christ Jesus. You know, I, I remember one Sunday morning. Um, you know, the, the beauty of mine by vocation now is that I get to be a normal person every once in a while, too. And, and just sit out there. In, in the pews, and somebody, I think it was my brother this morning, kind of laughing. We said, here comes the preacher. Uh, well, you know, I think Steve, Steve, what's his name down in Florida, used to say, uh, they call me Reverend, but I'm not. And I honestly can identify with that. But I remember one, one week, um, I think it was last fall. I remember walking in the doors of, that, um, of the sanctuary back here, and I had had a particularly bad week. Uh, not not in a financial way or anything like that, but just one of those weeks where I was keenly aware of my failure, my own personal sin, my own deficiencies, and uh, had struggled. I, I was absolutely ashamed of some of the things that I, that I had done and, and struggled with during the week. And I remember walking in and just kind of you know, floating across the back, back there, and, and uh, trying to find my seat in the sanctuary, my place in, on the pew, and feeling so isolated and alone in, in my sin, so aware of it, which is which is a good thing, really. Um, and and Umloth was leading music that day, and I, I think he does a great job. But he, uh, the song was up on on the screen. I'd never seen the song, never seen the song ever, never had. Sing it. And the words absolutely arrested me. Before the before the throne of God above, I have one strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever leaves, lives, and pleads for me. My name is Graven. On his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me, thence depart. No tongue can bid me, thence depart. Now catch this, because this, this was the stanza that just got me. When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the wrong within. Upward I look and see Him there who put an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful self is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at Him. Pardon me. We don't earn grace and we don't deserve it. It is no accident that Paul begins this passage with a reminder of the deeds of the flesh. And these things are not written so that you can go home and find somebody who's failing in these areas. These things are written because Paul was keenly aware of his deficiencies and his struggle with these things. His struggle and the conflict. And seeing these things in his own life, he realized what what is grace. How wonderful it is to take these things which cling to all of us and cleanse us and satisfy us. Satisfy the just demands of God. When you understand these things, when you understand God's grace, you want to do the right things. And just as the scripture teaches, and here's the application, you want to go back and get the log out of your eyes. You're going to focus on that. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, that's a lifelong focus. You won't have to help your brother with the splinter in his eyes for a long, long time while you're getting that log out of yours. And here's the application. Take that log out of your eye. Take your mask off. Be real. And live. Own your sin and live. Live in God's grace, which is transforming. I would be remiss not to leave you with some practical application found in Hebrews chapter 5, where Paul says, the writer of Hebrews says this. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. We can't cover this whole passage today. We can't get to the fruits of the Spirit, but we can deal with the flesh. But I am telling you this. We can walk by the Spirit and not be controlled by these desires. But the first step in doing that is owning those things and understanding their power and control in your life. And only by the grace of God are we freed from their power. But for believers, we can be mature. We can walk as the mature by practicing what is right. In the book of Titus, the third chapter, second and third chapter, there's a phrase that's repeated over and over again, at least four times. In chapter two, verse seven, Paul says, by doing what is good. In chapter three, verse one, do whatever is good. In verse eight, doing what is good. In verse 14, doing what is good. Doing what is good. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to do what is good. And if you've been transformed by God's grace because you're keenly aware of your sin and you understand his grace, you want to do the right things, that's why you want to do the right things. Because he put that desire there that opposes the flesh within Standing on a London street corner, G.K. Chesterton, this man who wrote into the editor saying, I am, what's wrong with the world, was approached by a newspaper writer and he said, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May May I ask you one question? Certainly replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? And Chesterton looked at the reporter squarely in the eyes and said, He is. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, thanking you for your presence in our lives. Keeps us from pulling the wool over ourselves. Your spirit convicts us of what's right and what's good. We are aware of the struggle within. We know the depths of our depravity. We know what's in our inner man. We thank you that by your grace you have saved us and seen fit to call us your children. We pray, Lord, that because of what you've done for us, as we examine your grace and understand the cross is something done by us, that our lives would be transformed and our desire would be toward what's right and what's good. Help us toward that effort. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.